Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. And this episode, produced in partnership with the Society for Critical Care Medicine, will focus on treating hospitalized patients with COVID-19, the challenges clinicians face, and what's working. To discuss this, our IDSA member, Dr. Adarsh Bimraj, with the Cleveland Clinic, and Society of Critical Care Medicine member, Dr. Laura Evans. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Bimraj, you've been treating COVID-19 patients at varying levels of severity for more than a year now. What are the evidence-based treatment modalities to treat hospitalized COVID patients, and what drug therapies are producing the best outcomes? There are a lot of things that we have learned over the course of the last one year. Before we approach a patient who is hospitalized, I think we have to kind of classify the patient because your treatment, uh, to a large extent, depend on how sick the patient is. Are they breathing by themselves? So the way we classify that as a mild and moderate disease. Or do they need oxygen by just a nasal cannula? That's a little uh, plastic pipe you put in the nose and you turn up the oxygen. And we call that a severe non-critical disease. But are they sick enough that that amount of oxygen is not necessary? They need to be admitted to an ICU uh, where they need something called high flow oxygen or sometimes even they need to be mechanically ventilated. In other words, they need a breathing machine. So these are the three categories of hospitalized patients. First, you have to put them in those boxes to figure out what works. So in the first category, if you're admitted to the hospital, but you don't need any oxygen, extra oxygen, think largely it's supportive care. If you look at it again, it's slightly controversial depending on who you talk to. But again, most other therapies have not shown any significant improvements. Steroids, if anything, might even cause a little harm if you started early before they go on any supplemental oxygen. Convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies too. And again, once they're admitted to a hospital, I think it's too late and they do not really show any kind of benefit. So essentially, uh, if you have not got an oxygen admitted to the hospital, uh, it's good supportive care and oxygen. Okay, the ones that require any supplemental oxygen, then there's some data that some agents might be useful. Clearly, corticosteroids, especially the corticosteroid called dexamethasone uh, in multiple trials has been shown to decrease uh, death or mortality. And that should be started, but it can be low dose, what we call a six milligrams uh, per kilogram of the patient's body weight uh, given for 10 days or less. Uh, the second agent, which has not shown any decrease in mortality or death, but at least gets people out of the hospital sooner is called as remdesivir. That's an antiviral medication. And the third agent, again, that is slightly an area that is being debated right now is tocilizumab. Uh, There's a huge trial which came out not too long ago called the recovery trial, which showed that if you have started people on steroids and they're still not getting better, then they may be a role for tocilizumab. In that huge study, it showed a benefit in uh, mortality or reduction in death. So in people who need supplemental oxygen, the three things, corticosteroids, uh, remdesivir, and maybe tocilizumab if they're not getting better. 
And the last category of patient uh, are the ones who are critically ill, that are admitted to the ICU on a mechanical ventilator or high flow oxygen. Clearly, steroids show a significant reduction in mortality, uh, much, much higher than those that just require a little oxygen. Dexamethasone can be used, and there's some data to show that even the other steroids, like hydrocortisone, can be useful in this particular population. Uh, remdesivir may or may not play a role in this particular population, and also if they're not responding, uh, the tocilizumab. There are a lot of agents that people have used in the past, like hydroxychloroquine. Now, I think ivermectin is getting a lot of publicity. There are other immunomodulatory agents, but based on clinical trial data or good evidence, I think we really don't know if there's any uh, support that they work or, or for that matter, even that they harm. Uh, I know that's a lot of things I covered, but in a nutshell, that's how you'd approach hospitalized patients, uh, depending on how sick they are. I agree completely with the sort of framing of the treatment guidance by the severity of illness. Because I think what we've learned in the last year from these clinical trials is that there definitely is different signal in how patients are responding to different treatments based on how sick they are when they get these treatments. And so I think it's definitely not one size fits all. And you really need to take into account the acuity of illness of the patient when you're considering what therapies to give them. And I think, Ardash, you're like spot on in terms of breaking it down by those levels of severity. Because we last thing we want to do, obviously, when folks are already so sick and hospitalized is cause harm by you know, giving inappropriate therapies for the severity of illness that they're experiencing at that time. Excellent points from both of you doctors. Thank you. But Dr. Evans, I'll stick with you now. Critical care concerns continue to challenge healthcare providers. What are you seeing and what can you tell us about the differences between treating mechanically ventilated or prone patients suffering from severe COVID in the ICU setting versus those receiving non-critical treatment? The critical care management has evolved quite a bit from you know, March of 2020 when, you know, in the U.S. at least, we started to see you know, significant numbers of critically ill patients with COVID-19. And there was a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy even around, is the critical illness syndrome that we were observing with COVID-19, was it different than other critical illness syndromes? So for example, was, and people may remember some of these debates about, you know, was the ARDS that was caused by COVID-19 or associated with COVID-19, was that fundamentally different than ARDS we saw from influenza, for example, or from other severe acute respiratory viral infections or other causes of ARDS like sepsis or trauma? And there was a lot of different hypotheses about you know, lung compliance and whether the management of these patients should be different than we would have managed them with similar critical illness syndromes that were not caused by COVID-19. And even practice patterns have changed very dramatically over the last year from favoring early initiation, early intubation and mechanical ventilation to, I think, of sort of, you know, whether you want to call it like, you know, a return to standard practice or I think we've changed in the sense that we are treating these patients in the ICU more similarly to how we kind of used to treat patients with ARDS in the ICU and saying that perhaps COVID-19 is not fundamentally a different critical illness syndrome than influenza-related ARDS. So we're not intubating as early in general as we were earlier on in the pandemic. 
we are really focusing on, Dr. Bimraj mentioned earlier, that the, you know, the supportive care. And that's kind of the bread and butter of what we do in the intensive care unit is really supportive care. We don't have a lot of specific therapies for most of the syndromes that we treat in the ICU. This return, I think appropriately so, to the really focus on providing outstanding supportive care and whether that be lung protective ventilation, the appropriate use of prone positioning for patients with severe ARDS, to really you know, diligent and scrupulous avoidance of hospital-acquired infections. All of that is probably responsible for some of the clinical strides we've seen in improving outcomes for patients with critical COVID-19. And then, of course, the application of appropriate sort of disease-targeted therapies when, they, when it's appropriate for that patient. And that may be like we were talking, just talking about the use of corticosteroids, consideration of tocilizumab in selected patients, and the, obviously the use of antivirals in appropriate patients as well. So I think it's, to me, a lot of a return to bread and butter critical care and support for these patients. I treat patients mostly in the intensive care unit, so I'm not as involved with their care prior to the ICU. But you know, by looking at the literature and the guidelines-based recommendations, a lot of the, the window for these disease-targeted treatments seems to be earlier on than or sort of further upstream rather than once the patient gets to the ICU. A lot of people get the idea that supportive care is chicken soup care. No, I think this is state-of-the-art care that is based on decades of great evidence. And I also agree, whenever we find a new process, I think it's instinctive to try something new that makes us feel better. But sometimes sticking with evidence-based proven therapies, like how do you approach a patient with odds, uh, what we know is better than thinking just because it's a new process, something new essentially will work. And I think you can't diminish the sense of, particularly for health hospitals and healthcare systems that have been under an enormous amount of, of strain. And we don't typically have an ICU full of patients with severe ARDS. I don't mean to diminish that that's profoundly unusual and unsettling and stressful. And, but it also, I think, fostered this sense of clinical desperation around we have to do something and it has to be beyond the sort of typical outstanding supportive care that we provide. I remember, you know, when I was in training, a really wise attending said to me, you know, Laura, one of the, the art forms that you're going to learn is when to not just stand there, do something, and when to not just do something, stand there. And I think that has been a big challenge for providers across the course of the pandemic is knowing where to strike on that balance of, okay, we just, we need a little bit more supportive care and observation versus this is the time to really move forward and you know, perhaps we take additional risks in terms of investigational therapies and I think it's been a re really interesting learning curve, and I feel especially grateful to the folks around the world, patients, investigators, researchers, who have really pushed doing high-quality clinical research in the midst of a pandemic to help us guide care at the bedside better. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to covid19learningnetwork.org. Doctors, thank you for sharing your insights and experiences. Dr. Bimraj, coming back to you, 
Can you talk about the experience of treating a novel virus with new therapies? And what special considerations do you always have to keep in mind? The nature of infectious diseases, at least that's what our practice is, there's always something novel, right? We have Ebola, we had SARS-CoV-1, if we can call it, we have MERS, we had avian influenza. So I think we're kind of used to it. What we are not used to is the scale and the extent at which it has occurred with COVID-19. The nature of ID practice, I always like to say, is Heraclitus, as the Greek philosopher said, the stream you see is not the stream you step into. It's always changing. I think you have to be radically open-minded. Like uh, Dr. Evans said, I think at the beginning of the epidemic, it was very easy to get overwhelmed and get forced into doing something. It took a lot more wisdom and courage for us to step back and masterfully be inactive and ask us, okay, what are proven therapies? Try them rather than throwing the kitchen sink at the patient and hoping something works. And then recruiting patients into trials, not just at an individual level or an institutional level, but at a medical community and a humanities level, I think we came together. We have done pragmatic trials. Uh, we have done randomized controlled trials generating data. And that data today is able to tell us what works, what doesn't work. Mortalities have come down. And again, you should look at the incidence of disease, it's coming down and economies are opening up. You can look at it as a crisis, but out of this crisis, something beautiful came together. And we know novel treatments, we know novel therapies, and we also have lessons uh, which go beyond this pandemic that we have learned from this pandemic. So Winston Churchill said, never let a crisis go for a waste. And I don't think we have. Thank you, Dr. Bimraj. What are your recommendations, Dr. Evans, for patients in terms of non-pharmacologic critical care treatment? Yeah, we touched a little bit on this already in terms of this concept of supportive care. And I would put you know, most non-pharmacologic treatments you know, well within that bucket of supportive care. And Dr. Bimraj, supportive care can get a little bit of a, of a bad rap that it's just, yeah, chicken soup. Not that chicken soup can't be great, but you know, that it's not meaningful or it doesn't have the same sort of like, you know, magic bullet kind of effect as, as a disease targeted treatment does. But supportive care really is, I think, responsible for a, a lot of the gains um, in terms of improved outcomes for critically ill patients that we've seen over the last you know, few decades. And it, there's a concept that you know, critical care can provide great level support, but we can also do harm in the ICU through the acquisition of hospital-acquired infections, through DVT or venous thromboembolic disease, through damaging people's lungs by pursuing particular strategies on the ventilator. So I think the non-pharmacologic treatment to me is really about you give the patients, they give their body time to heal and don't cause harm by our, the things that we're doing to try to give that patient time. And so those are, to me, are the really critical points of lung protective ventilation. Lung protective ventilation doesn't cure ARDS. It doesn't fix it. What it does is hopefully reduces the ongoing injury while giving the patient's immune system time to fight the SARS-CoV-2 infection, to you know, sepsis, to treat the underlying cause of this. Lung protective ventilation is a critical one. We touched on prone positioning for patients with severe ARDS. And I think we've never seen you know, as much conversation about you know, having patients lay on their stomach even before, obviously, before they're mechanically ventilated and what the role might be in that and preventing the progression of their respiratory failure to the point where they need mechanical ventilation. There's still a lot of unknowns, though, in terms of how to approach this. 
what is the optimal use of non-invasive ventilation in patients with ARDS. Classically, we did not use a lot of non-invasive ventilation for the management of ARDS because ARDS is a syndrome that tends to resolve relatively slowly. And for a patient, being on non-invasive ventilation for a substantial duration of time is certainly difficult to tolerate, and you can end up with you know, complications from that, including you know, pressure sores on people's faces or noses from the mask interface for the use of non-invasive ventilation. What exactly is the role of high-flow nasal oxygen in this? We're certainly using a lot of it, and some patients seem to do well with it, and we think perhaps some people are avoiding progression to mechanical ventilation through the use of high-flow nasal oxygen when appropriate. But there's a lot of unanswered questions, and we'll look forward to additional data coming out to help guide us. There's a lot of clinical questions that we still need better information about. What is the right use of anticoagulation in this population? There's certainly been a lot of conversation about whether the um, incidence of venous thromboembolic disease, even arterial thrombosis, is particularly elevated in patients with COVID-19 but anticoagulation clearly can cause harm in some patients. And so what population should we be considering using this in? And we've seen some early press release data from some of these trials that suggests that perhaps hospitalized patients, but those who are not critically ill, so severe but not critical COVID might benefit from therapeutic use of anticoagulation, but that signal was potentially reversed, at least by the early press release data, that suggested either futility or even potentially harm for empiric anticoagulation in patients without thrombotic disease in ICU patients. So I think there's a lot yet to know, and I think the pace of information coming out has been like drinking from the fire hose, but even with that, there's still so many unanswered questions. Great points, Dr. Evans. For this last question, I'll direct it to both of you. I'll start with you, Dr. Mirage. In your experience, how has treatment for hospitalized patients evolved since the start of the pandemic? What's working in post-acute COVID critical care management of COVID-19 patients? And what issues in general need attention? So we're clearly in a place where we know more today than a year ago. We haven't found a magic bullet. We haven't found the penicillin for streptococcal infections. But at the same time, we found therapies like I mentioned earlier, steroids, particularly followed by remdesivir to an extent and maybe tocilizumab, that at least have some modest benefit from a pharmacological point of view. From a non-pharmacological point of view too, I think we have figured out ways to take care of these patients uh, in a way that we can get them out of hospital sooner uh, with lesser complications. But having said that, as the pandemic is coming to an end, um, cautiously optimistic, making that statement, even with the new variants and everything, we'll have to deal with a lot of these long haulers or post-acute or chronic COVID. A lot of these patients have neurological symptoms or non-specific psychological as well as physical symptoms or those with significant damage to the lungs and heart. I think we are just beginning to define these categories of patients, assess them for their discomfort, their distress, and their disabilities. But we still need to figure out how can we take care of them. And I'm not necessarily saying that we need to figure out a drug, but at least a strategy as to how to make them better so that they can get back to their lives. So there's hope in the horizon. We are still not out of the pandemic yet. 
But as we get out of the pandemic, I think we need strategies as to how do we take care of these people who've been chronically affected. But at a societal level, I think we have to look at pandemic preparedness. My grandmother, who was uneducated from India, said the time to dig a well is not when you're thirsty. For the next pandemic, hopefully we have learned lessons uh, as a global community as to, okay, what do we do so that for the next unknown virus or whatever catastrophe we have, hope we should be more prepared. So not just from a COVID-19, but from a broader perspective, we hope we are prepared for the future. Each time we have an event, we learn more about the gaps in our system. And Dr. Bimraj, you mentioned just briefly alluding to the Ebola outbreak of 2014, 2016. And I think about the gaps that we learned about in our healthcare system, just from that, right? We only had what, a total of 11 cases in the US or something along those lines. But it illustrated gaps in how we were prepared to recognize and manage and respond to an infectious disease outbreak. The gaps that we've identified in the system and how we prepare and how we respond and how we cooperate and work together as a healthcare system that have come to light and I think have come to public attention from the COVID-19 response is really, really dramatic. And I hope that this public attention and that we can use that and learn from that. You mentioned earlier, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think that that's really key. We have to learn from this event. We have to be able to do better next time. Not that we'll be perfect, but we have to take, we have to take an honest look at what we've done well and what we haven't done well and think about how hospitals and healthcare systems interact with one another. How do we keep every hospital functioning as well as it can without um, you know, shutting down the whole system? And I think about some of these small hospitals that perhaps are not part of a large hospital system, like the, the two systems where you and I both work, how alone they must have felt when they were experiencing a surge without being part of a, a larger system to help offload them to provide resources to accept patients and transfer. And I think we need to build a stronger, more resilient system so that nobody ends up in trouble while there's still resources available nearby or elsewhere. So I think there's there's huge efforts to be made in terms of pandemic preparedness. And, and you're right, it's not just pandemics, right? It's, it's preparedness for sort of all hazards approach of things that can impose significant stress on the hospital system or the healthcare system you know, across the continuum of care. You know, in terms of what's working for patients in terms of follow-up, again, I, I want to think of this as an opportunity. We know from lots of data that patients who have been sick enough to be hospitalized experience long-term consequences from that, not just in the ICU, but hospitalization in general. That may be a consequence of whatever illness they experience directly. It may be a consequence of things that are associated with being sick in the hospital, delirium, other organ failures. But people are, are rarely the same after being hospitalized. This, to me, presents a huge research opportunity to understand both, you know, as, you were, as you were saying, you know, the long-term you know, disease-specific effects, what the, the immunologic response looks like over time, but also around systems of care and how what we do early on in an illness may have long lasting ramifications for patients. And so I think, I hope to see 
a really cogent, thoughtful, and broad-based research approach so that we can really inform this and do better with patients down the line. I don't know, we can keep talking about it for us together, but the one other thing I want to add to, which you kind of indirectly alluded to, Dr. Evans, is like not just pandemic preparedness, but I think this pandemic kind of brought out the structural determinants of populations that are disproportionately affected. Recently at CRY, that's going on right now, I think they said it's called the inverse care law. People who are most affected are not people who are recruited into trials, not people who can actually get care. How can we actually address that? Hopefully, in addition to preparedness for pandemic and emergencies, now that this pandemic has magnified that issue, we can, as a society, even address that. We as a society need to, to collectively you know, take a look, take an honest appraisal and say, we can learn from this and we can do better. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Vimraj and Evans for their time, participation and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.